Hey, Slava Connection listeners. So back in September 2020, as I'm sure many of our listeners remember, Nagorno-Karabakh became a pretty big talking point in Western media as this frozen conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, one that's been ongoing since 1994 and 1988, if you want to pull it back that far. It became hot again in this mountainous region in the Caucasus and resulted in tragic losses and destruction. The dispute is an ethnic one, as well as territorial, and in 2020, Armenia ultimately surrendered, signing a ceasefire. Renewed clashes bring our focus back to this area to explore the history of the conflict and, more specifically, to explore the context of Nagorno-Karabakh and Azeri-Armenian relations through the lens of Moscow. So for this episode, uh, I'm just joined by Zach Johnson. Zach, season five, welcome. How are you? I am doing well. I am in what you called postgraduate school land, and uh, it's a new and exciting place, but <laughs> it was an absolute pleasure to speak with Dr. Tanoyan. Uh, I know this, this conflict is deeply personal, but he gave us an incredible ride through not only the history of the conflict, bringing us up to the contemporary period and kind of the hot period of conflict we're seeing now, but you know, taking us through various geopolitical vectors. So if you're a fan of geopolitics, you want more insight into the region itself and the conflict you're seeing on the news now, this was an excellent discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And if you have time afterwards, we couldn't recommend his book more, Black Garden of Flame, the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict in the Soviet and Russian press. So without any further ado, here's our episode. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're ready to start, we can just go ahead and start. Um, I'm happy, Dr. Tenoyan, to welcome you back to Texas, at least digitally, since we heard that you spent some time here at Baylor University. So not quite University of Texas, but, you know, close enough. Thank you for inviting me. I hope we'll have a good conversation. And it's a, it's a timely topic. Yeah, very much so. So, I mean, on that note, uh, I was wondering if we could kind of start with you giving us a quick history lesson on Armenia and Azerbaijan. It's kind of been coming in and out of the news for a while, but for a lot of people, it's it's something that's always on the periphery. It's it's a little bit hard to unpack. So could you kind of like explain how it came about that the Nagorno-Karabakh became so fiercely contested? Why this hostility between these two former republics of the USSR? So right from the get-go, we're opening the Pandora's box. So ripping the Band-Aid <laughs> off might as well. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give some overarching historical excursus, uh, which itself is contested, as you may imagine, uh, because the battle over Nagorno-Karabakh is as much about land as it is over history and historiography. And in our parts of the world, much of history is made not by politicians, but poets and historians, <laughs> those that know how to muster and channel emotions, so to speak, more than politicians. But having said that, I must premise uh, my introductory remarks by saying that I am not a historian. I'm by training a sociologist. So my historical presentation may be not sharp-edged and hard-nosed, as some people would like it to be. So the conflict, well, you know, Armenians and Azeris have lived side by side for centuries. Armenians, according to most of and most reputable historians, they've had presence in these lands for almost uh, three millennia. The Armenian history goes, goes back, and Armenians especially take pride of being indigenous and autochthonous to the region and not being newcomers and so on and so forth. Well, Azeris also 
have lived in 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 present day Azerbaijan, and in some have lived in present day Armenia for centuries. Their presence is not as old as Armenians, but it doesn't negate their right to existence where they are, right? And and, and it would be ridiculous to claim that because uh, your people, your ancestors were newer to the territory, for some reason you don't have the right to exist on those territories and make culture, create culture and, uh, and, and live on and prosper and so on and so forth. But having said that, uh, these are two neighboring countries uh, with clashing histories, with clashing historiography. There have been episodic periods of convivencia, and they've lived peacefully side by side. But uh, with the emergence of the age of nationalism in the 19th century, where Armenians who had been subjugated by three empires, the Russian, the Persian, and the Ottoman empires, they come to articulate nationhood, not in terms of their religious belonging. Armenians are Christians, so when they lost their statehood in the 14th century, they essentially became almost a peregrinary religious group uh, who were settled on territories that they had originally became a nation, but also uh, because there are these middlemen minorities, much like Jews, much like the Greeks before independence, they, you know, uh, uh, their their belonging, their identity was not based on land. It was mostly based along religious belonging and so on and so forth. But in 19th century, 18th century, rather, uh, the Armenians from the diaspora start first articulating Armenian nationhood, not along religious lines, but a politicized version of Armenian identity. And interestingly enough, these new conceptions of Armenian identity would not rise in Armenia proper, but in communities in Venice, in Italy, and in India, where the Armenian trade networks existed and they were underwriting new intellectual ferment and new intellectual endeavors, uh, underwriting historical studies, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, with the Azeris, they started undergoing their own cultural revival, their own conception of identity and identity formation much later, but it was also just as powerful as the Armenian conception of nationhood. So conflicts that prior were sort of rooted in religious differences would become rooted in national and ethnic differences. But because modern-day Armenia and Azerbaijan, they were part of the Russian Empire at the time, the Russian center, the imperial center, was able to sort of keep them in check. And the Armenians and Azeris then gained independence in 1918, because the Russians were busy with World War I, uh, the center could not exercise its power as it was able to do in decades and centuries past. So the Armenia, Azerbaijan, and, and, and Georgia become independent entities for about two years. Then the Soviet Union is established, which incorporates all these three republics, first as a Transcaucasian federation, then separately as Armenian and Azeri and, and, and Georgian social, Soviet socialist republics. But there were a couple of issues of contention. Uh, Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, which Armenians call Artsakh, had a majority Armenian population. According to the data, census data, right before the incorporation of the region into the Soviet empire, the population of Nagorno-Karabakh was about 94-95% Armenian. 
as opposed to 5%. Uh, Nagorno, as you know, means mountainous region, and Armenians uh, mostly lived in the mountainous areas. And the Valley Karabakh was dwelled by uh, uh, pastoral people like, uh, like the Azeris and, and some Kurds. So, but there also was another, another area called Nahichevan, which also was historically Armenian, had been, but Armenian numbers had been reduced through various technologies of social engineering. But uh, at the, the time of the incorporation of these three republics into the Soviet Union, the Armenians in Nahichevan didn't compose a majority of the population, it was mostly by then already a majority Azeri population, but I think around 40% of the population was, was Armenian or thereabouts with Armenian mon- monasteries, Armenian churches, Armenian cemeteries, and so on and so forth. Everything that sort of testifies their existence. Well, in 1921, when the Soviet Union is formed and the Transcaucasian Federation republics are becoming Soviet republics separately, the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh are, have petitioned for them to be incorporated into mainland Armenia, which, as you can imagine, was not something that Azeris would be happy with. They thought it's within their uh, sovereign boundaries, and why should it be gifted to the Armenians? Well, the Transcaucasian Federation, same, uh, or the um, sort of the parliament, votes to incorporate Nagorno-Karabakh into Armenia because of its cultural ties, and demographically it made absolute sense. But for some reason, uh, within a couple of days, the decision of, of, of the parliament of the same is being overwritten by Joseph Stalin, who was at the time the commissar for the nationalities questions in the, in, in the Soviet Union. There has been much conjecture, there has been much ink spilled over why Stalin would make this fateful decision. We can only surmise. There is no documentary record about his decision-making. It was Stalin. He said it's going to happen this way, and usually things turned out that way. But Armenians sort of, of course, were disappointed. There were clashes. There were disagreements. There was, uh, there was bloodshed. But at the end of the day, Nagorno-Karabakh would be incorporated as an enclave, as an autonomous republic into Azerbaijan. Subsequent protests would break out by Armenians, but they would be either quelled and the people who would be organizing this protest would be sent to join the tra- uh, Siberian Symphony Orchestra and some gulags rotting away. So that is sort of the big, long durée background of the conflict. Conflict remains dormant. The Soviet Union becomes this superpower with monopoly on violence within its territories, and you dare not question uh, the the, uh, the way the Soviet Union was governed. Right? You you just could not question it. And for seventy years, this problem appeared to have gone away. But as as everything in the Soviet Union, things were slowly cooking. And it's one of the things that the Soviet government didn't notice until it was too late. Uh, In 1985, when Gorbachev comes to power, 
well, he comes and he says, let's restructure the economy, open it up, make it more compatible with the West. We know about the technical word he used, perestroika. And the other word that he brought by was glasnost, right? Freedom of speech, openness, and so on and so forth. When, when you open one box, you have to open all of them. So <laughs> one of the boxes that were opened were these different nationalities and their grievances about historic injustices and so on and so forth. And that sort of perestroika and glasnost opened up the Armenian society, opened up, brought to the fore of Armenia's political and cultural life, voices that had been hitherto suppressed. Intellectuals who were dissidents, some intellectuals who were nationalists, and so on and so forth. And the same processes were, of course, happening in Georgia, in Ukraine, in, 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 in Azerbaijan, and so on and forth, so on and so forth, and Central Asian republics. But the Armenian sort of the intellectual avant-garde was the first to broach this topic of redressing mistakes in nationalities questions uh, by the earlier iterations of the Soviet government. And one of the issues that were raised, along with some environmental uh, issues, actually the Armenian democratic movement in 1980s when it emerged was initially an environmentalist movement, a green movement. But in 1987, the discourse changes and Armenians start asking, what about Nagorno-Karabakh? Because uh, by 1988, as you remember, I premised the intro saying that 94-95% of the population in Nagorno-Karabakh were Armenians. But by 1988, the Armenian population was 75%. And the Azeris, uh, through social engineering, through the efforts of Heydar Aliyev, the current president's father, they start demographically re-engineering the region. And the Armenians were not allowed education in their language. Most Armen- most schools were either in Azerbaijani or in, in, in Russian. The Armenians, uh, in order to get education in their language, uh, higher education in their language, they had to move to Armenia or they had to go. Uh, there were no functioning char- churches and, and there were no opportunities for them to self-express in terms that were near and dear to them. So they felt discriminated. In 1987, they started petitioning the Soviet government in contravention to the accepted sort of proper Soviet channels. In 1988, Nagorno-Karabakh Armenians in February directly petitioned the Soviet government to revisit Stalin's fateful decision and to incorporate Nagorno-Karabakh in its current borders, in its current form, into mainland Soviet Armenia. So they can watch Armenian TV, so they can learn Armenian, so they don't have to name their kids uh, uh, Russian names. <laughs> most most Armenian, not most, but a lot of Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, interestingly enough, have Russian first names. Serge, Robert, or, or Anglophone, or, or foreign first names. There was one way, sort of, a silent resistance uh, to, to what was happening. So Armenians make these demands, the center is not happy, Gorbachev says, and the Politburo says, this is not the time, we have bigger fish to fry, and this is, you know, only two years after the Chernobyl disaster, the country is in its throes, the economy is not doing better, and so on and so forth. So this is not the time for you little people to bring about all your tribal differences to the agenda of the Soviet Politburo. Well, Nagorno-Karabakh people, of course, are not happy. The Armenians pour onto the streets. Demonstrations, upwards of a million people pour into the streets in Yerevan, demanding redress. 
The response in Azerbaijan was very swift. In 1988, February, at the end of February, Azerbaijani youth descend on the Armenian parts of Sumgait, which is essentially a town just outside of Baku, and start killing Armenians, massacring Armenians. According to official estimates, 32 people are killed, of which 26 are Armenians, six are Azerbaijanis, but the Official numbers uh, coming out of the Soviet Union could not be trusted, and some unofficial numbers put the estimate upwards of 200 Armenians being killed. And that sort of was what opened the Pandora's box in the Soviet Union. Of course, the so- initial Soviet reaction was, you know, I, I, uh, it's in the book as well, uh, that essentially nothing happened. Some hooligans did what hooligans usually do, and the Soviet government is, you know, going to take care of it. Don't worry about it. It was on page four on Pravda on March 1, the news, only four, exactly four sentences. And then the Soviet independent journalists started traveling, videos appeared, and it sent the Soviet system into a shock. So that is sort of the background, and I'm a I gave you probably 20-minute lecture on this, but that sort of sets what comes down the road. So, Dr. Tanoyan, thank you again for, for joining us. The book views the conflict through the lens of Soviet, late Soviet, and then Russian media. And the book really starts out with saying there has never been and probably never will be, you know, one singular Russian view of the conflict. I was hoping, though, despite there not being one singular, maybe easily digestible view, you could put forth for our listeners some of the dominant views or how those views have evolved from the period of Gorbachev and Perestroika up until now through Putin and what we could call maybe late Putin or or, um, the period we're in now in the present. You know, maybe some of those dominant views that are circling around Russian media and Russian society um, and how they've evolved since that late Soviet period. Sure. So there is a couple of sort of dominant views with the Soviet media. As you can imagine, the Soviet media was ultimately and inevitably and without reservation uh, subservient to the Soviet government. Everything was censored and there was the party line, you towed it and so on and so forth. But this is happening in late 1980s, which means that there are also emerging alternative views. But uh, having said that, Most of the Soviet coverage and most of the Soviet media coverage reflected the official position, both said and unsaid. And the official position was that, yes, the problem is real. You can deal with it. We will deal with it and we will impose a solution and you better live with it. And the solution being, in so many words, that we don't want to give preference to the Armenians or to the Azeris. We want this to be an equitable solution. It appeared to be rational on its, on its face, but we also want it to be within the existing status quo. The territory is not going to be transferred to the Armenians because uh, there are, you know, Pandora's boxes and then there are Pandora's boxes. If we all of a sudden decide to transfer Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia, imagine all the other issues that need to be relitigated. Crimea. Central Asian republics, all of them have ethnic grievances, all of them, you know, have patchwork of nationalities, you know, 
Ossetians living inside Georgia, Georgians living inside Abkhazia. All of this has to be litigated. So we are not going to let this happen. What we will do, we will make sure that Armenians are getting their cultural rights untrampled. They will get what they want in terms of culturally. And we're going to pour money and we're going to make sure that uh, that Armenians are happy, but also that Azeris are happy. Sort of that that was the dominant Soviet Orthodox view and the newspapers reflected it and they had no other chance. But the more independent voices, the more liberal-minded press, they were mostly pro-Armenian in in editorializing or in articles and so on and so forth, because uh, to the liberal mind, all differences must be settled through suasion and persuasion, right? Not through force of arms or not through violence. And when the pogroms against Armenians happened, when one Soviet nationality victimizes another, it's a scandal to the liberal mind. How can in the 20th century, in the post-World War II era, where genocides and, and the Holocaust was possible, how can we, this advanced civilizational powerhouse that we call the Soviet Union, how can it allow one group of people to commit barbarous acts? And when the Sumgayit happened, and when I say, you know, 26 or 32 people or 200 people are killed, we're not talking about a surgical operation when somebody just dies. These killings were super gory and, and, and super brutal. People, pregnant women being thrown off balconies and heads, you know, smashed. This, this was absolutely gory and, and almost phantasmagorical. It was like you were inside a... Hieronymus Bosch painting, you know, just uh, hellish, hellish stuff. And so, so the liberal press had a different view and a different conception of how the question should have been solved. And they saw that the Armenian demand was just, that the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, had their rights taken away and trampled and so on and so forth. And this needs to be addressed. And one way to address it was to make right by the Armenians by transferring Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia, which would then be uh, secure under Armenian rule. But the Russian narrative coming from the government or the government differential press has not changed much, actually. I always feel like telling my... I, I always try to find an analogy on how to describe the the Russian view. Putin's view hasn't changed. It's not as far removed from Gorbachev's view or Yeltsin's view. We will help you settle it, but will be you know it will be within certain parameters of a status quo. It hasn't changed. I mean, when you read the Russian press and you analyze, you know, look through the verbiage. Yes, it shows some sort of a heartbeat, you know, up and down, up and down. It's not super static. It shows signs of life. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's in the long term. And in its effect, it is sort of, sort of a static. You know, in the book, I say in the introduction that sometimes in the press coverage reflecting uh, the dominant view of the Russian political establishment has rhetorically favored the Armenians. And sometimes the dominant paradigm, the the dominant narrative has favored Baku. But at all times, to no one's surprise, it has favored the Russian Federation and the Russian government. 
It is not surprising. It shouldn't be. It is a luxury that empires can afford, <laughs> large countries can afford, especially large countries that are called upon to referee between conflicts like this. Yeah, as far as Russia's intentions, in, in one of the more startling pieces of commentary in the book, in a piece from Russia's Independent Gazette in, in 2010, there's an Aziri diplomat and analyst who says that Russia's ultimate strategic goal is to prevent the Karabakh conflict from being resolved. Because a resolution of the conflict would mean Russia taking a back seat, the potential of, of these two nations joining NATO. And so all of a sudden, Russia would go from the lead player, the lead mediator, and, and all of a sudden become some sort of secondary player. And that was just a really incredible piece. I guess it was in 2010 in, in Russia's independent gazette. Um, I'm not sure their affiliation with the government or what it, whatever it may be. But I just wanted to get your opinion because, you know, reading through the book, that was a really startling piece of commentary. And I was curious do you believe, you know, because Russia's been this constant throughout the process, do you believe Russia has sincere intentions of, of solving this conflict? And how does that fit into their geopolitical aims? Well, it's, it is not a heretical statement. Uh, it is a view widely shared in certain segments of the Armenian commentariat and the specialist community, as well as in, as in, in Azerbaijan. And it's not that far off the mark. It's not in Russia's best interests to have a conflict in its periphery. But it is not also in Russia's best interests to make sure that the conflict is extinguished in its totality because it will lose leverage. And like I said, empires and big countries, they always need fires to use their fire hoses. It is, you know, there is a political analyst some years ago, not a political analyst, actually, a political theorist of great merit, Michael E. Brown, and he has put out some very interesting work. It, it is beneficial for larger countries to have in the smaller countries in their neighborhood to have some destabilization or destabilization potential in, in their small territories because it, because it will allow the larger power stakeholders to be able to project power, to be able to, to manage and to be able to sort of drive their interests. So it is not sort of something that we're discovering all of a sudden. This, this has been historically the case and, and the Russian sort of a view or the Russian conduct is not altogether out of the ordinary. They haven't created this. And so, yes, it is possible. And in, even if you read in the, in the current analysis, especially Western-centric analysis, that is absolutely an accepted line of thought, that it is not in Russia's best interest. Because if the Armenians and Azeris set aside their differences, for instance, the Russian presence in the region becomes redundant. Why should, if Armenia doesn't have a conflict with Azerbaijan or with Turkey, why should the Russian troops be stationed in Armenia? They are redundant. They are budget killer. Yeah, we'll watch Russian TV and we'll read Russian books, but we will not be beholden to Moscow. So, and the same goes with, with Azerbaijan and with the same goes with Georgia, right? So it is, it is within an orthodox understanding of how Russia views the conflict, how Russia views the region, and, and, and its conduct is sort of predetermined by its status as a great power that can impose its will, that can impose its, its culture, that can 
pose its cultural and political discourse and sociological trends on this on these regions. And Russia is afraid that yeah, they may become redundant, and so they will try to make their best to make sure that they are not asked to leave the region unceremoniously, as it happened in Georgia, for instance. So the Russians are not completely irrational on this. They see the trends. They read the papers. That's why they have, you know, greatly staffed embassies and 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 local people informants who work with them and so on and so forth. So it's not completely irrational. It's very pragmatic for them, and so their conduct is, in a sense, predetermined by its size and by its by its view of the world. And right now they are very Manichaean. And, you know, on that note of of kind of the great game of geopolitics, I just have to bring in Turkey because I'm curious not only what world does the Turkish vector, so to speak, play in the conflict, but also how does it affect Moscow's, I hate to say objective, but how does it affect Moscow playing the role of a true mediator when they know that Azerbaijan and Baku has this big partner in their corner and and that has these deep kind of historical ties and then obviously the animosity and the deep-rooted kind of animus from the Armenian side towards Turkey. You know, what role does Turkey play from the Russian view and in coming to some sort of resolution of the conflict in general? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And the Turkish position regarding the conflict is very interesting. It's one of the uh, actually most uh, fascinating parts of the book is the Russian press's coverage of the Turkish position. And if you see in the very beginning parts of that section, the interview with the Turkish ambassador by, I think, Izvestia, right after Azerbaijan has been recognized as an independent country by Turkey, Izvestia sits down with the Turkish ambassador to the to Russia and asks some questions, and the conversation turns to the question of Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. And the Turkish ambassador sounds utterly rational, utterly predictable and Turkish conduct in the in the beginning of the conflict was completely predictable and Turkey says yes we are brotherly country with Azerbaijan but we're not going to supply Azerbaijan with weapons because it will make the conflict all the more intractable all the more bloodier so we're going to try to sort of hold back and 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 be helpful with the resolution of the conflict. Well, fast forward five years, fast forward ten years, and the Turkish position has completely changed. And under Erdogan, there's a hundred and eighty degree turn where you know the Turkish position was more or less moderate because back then they had the European aspirations, they had to conduct themselves within certain parameters. But under Erdogan, all of this has been jettisoned. And Turkey throws its weight in support of Azerbaijan, a complete turnabout. And that sort of turnabout is is fascinating in some respects. But your question about Russia and, and Turkey, you know, right now, Putin and Erdogan are conducting this public display of affection, total geopolitical PDA. It's like becoming almost X-rated. It's like guys get a room. (laughs) <laughs> because Russia is trying to weaken NATO, right? It's Russia's ultimate goal to sort of render NATO as non-threatening and as defanged as possible because it fears NATO and its unified capacity. And Russia has sort of courted Turkey ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, but it became more acute 
in the last decade or so. And Russians, though, are super wary. If you read the Russian commentary, even during the war, if you read some level-headed Russian analysts, they were very, very wary about Turkey throwing its weight in the Caucasus. You have to realize that until the 2020 war, Turkey had very little sort of geopolitical weight in the South Caucasus. But with this war, Russia allowed Turkey, a NATO country, to have a strong and a firm foothold in the South Caucasus, which Russia has considered as its backyard for centuries. But all of a sudden, it has a NATO country ostensibly friendly with Turkey, ostensibly doing billions of dollars of worth of trade and so on and so forth. But at the same time, it is a great military power. It has the second largest NATO military on Russia's back door. Chechnya is next door. Dagestan is next door. And when you have a strong military presence, a strong military presence also means strong military intelligence presence. And if the Russian fortunes change, it's very well within the possibility that the Turkish intelligence will start chipping away or creating hotspots in, you know, in rest of areas like Chechnya and, and in Dagestan. And let's not forget that in 1990s, when the conflict in Chechnya was being waged, right, the war against, uh, the war in Chechnya was being waged, Turkey was a big supplier of, of Chechen fighters. Financially, military networks that existed, that were exploited, and so on and so forth. So there is great wariness towards Turkey being there, but Russians believe that their geopolitical calculus is robust enough and they believe in their ability to hold back uh, the Turkish military presence at their footstep. And I think it's, it's it, you know, not, you know, mathematicians can calculate, but not all mathematicians are good mathematicians. You, know? <laughs> you can always miscalculate. And, and I think it's a great miscalculation on the part of the Russians when they allowed Turkey to have such a robust presence at their doorstep. And it's going to bite them in the, uh, one of my favorite French words is derrière. <laughs> it's going to bite them there at some point. Not today, not tomorrow, but it will come. that I, I found very valuable, at least again from someone coming from the West, is the perspective of the U.S. And the Russian articles do address, you know, that uh, the U.S. got involved with the USAID program, sending humanitarian aid. But it also really gets into, you know, a lot of, I believe, deafening silence is the word used in somewhere in the introduction of how, for the most part, the U.S. was silent in terms of the media on what was happening over there. And admittedly, you know, with a frozen conflict you can argue there's not much to report, but then you reach 2020, you have social media now and it explodes all of this coverage. And especially now we're looking at increased conflict this week as well to kind of date the episode of September 2022. How do you find that this sort of juxtaposition of nothing in general being reported on while, you know, there is still issues over there, there is still conflict, there's something worth reporting, you could argue than to have, you know, this sort of media blitz in 2020 and now in 2022. You know, I, I can't remember. It was either Mark Twain or 
somebody else with a lesser stature uh, who said that uh, war is God's way of teaching Americans geography. That's a very good quote. <laughs> uh, but apparently when, uh, when America goes to war with a certain country, then we know where that country is located. Also, Fox News types probably still don't. They're bad, bad at geography in general. <laughs> so there has been occasional coverage. And a lot of this coverage, though welcome, but even today, you mean even yesterday, like the New York Times and Washington Post reporting, it's just so rife, either with both sideism, you know, you ancient Asiatics, you're at it again, you know, you do this for centuries. This is almost boring for us. Okay. So it's not, it's no longer interesting. You've been at each other's throats for centuries. This is, you know, and it's framed as ancient hatreds. It's framed as Christians versus Muslims, Muslims versus everybody or some such thing. So there is coverage, there is burst of coverage, there is narrative being driven by social media engagement, you know, some Armenian celebrities tweet about it and a political type picks it up and so on and so forth. And it goes from there into in, into some other vectors. But when it comes to how the Russians look at the American engagement, which is the most fascinating part for me in the book, is that how wary again they are of of the American presence in the region. Because they think, because the view of the world is so Manichaean, because it's the grays have no shades, because it's so black and white for the Russian policymakers and for the political class and for the, uh, and for the uh, commentariat, is if they give an inch to the United States, the United States will take a mile. So they do not want to give an inch. So every movement by the United States, not so much by the Europeans, although now it's becoming also part of the discourse the Europeans are becoming, is that if all of a sudden Russia withdraws or appears to be weak or appears to be ready share power or conflict management, what it's not heading it, they think the Americans will come and take it all. Uh, I wrote some paper when I was a PhD student about the Armenians in, in, in Georgia and how the Russian perception of the Americans, and, and I talked about the Russian perception, you know, the Americans coming to Georgia in the wake of 9-11 and staying there and creating a base or two or whatever. Uh, that wariness is there. So they think if, if this conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh happens, they have to marginalize sort of the American and Western presence. Because if they're not marginalized, and if they are not rhetorically, constantly on the offensive against the Americans or the Europeans, they will just lose. So the, the, it, it's completely fear-driven. It, it, it lacks sort of a positive agenda of engagement. It's either fear or you have to bring the cudgel every time you're in the region. And it has created wearisome. It's, it's tiring. It's taxing for the local populations. And has that always been the case in, in the post-Soviet space that the Russian government had this don't give an inch stance? Because it, at times in the, books, in the book, it seems that you have quotes from Dmitry Medvedev and he's, taught, he's referencing the Minsk group from OSCE. And so it seems that there is some willingness to engage in this kind of trilateral mediator peacekeeping situation. Is that just kind of placating the West? Was that genuine at any point? Or has it always been fundamentally this don't give an inch stance? Publicly, we will be working with you. It's always to have multilateralism. 
It's always to have cooperation and so on and so forth. But even if you look at the articles from 1993 on the Russian part, from like 19, since 1993, the Russians have always wanted to be the one driving the school bus. The Russians, if they have talked about peacekeepers and international peacekeepers, they have always wanted to be having the majority of the peacekeepers. They wanted to have Russian generals leading the mission. They never, ever considered even to be anything but the first, anything but the driver. And it has always been like that. They have always been wary. Yes, cooperation is good. Yes, cooperation is great. But the cooperation cannot be an end in itself. It's uh, primus inter pares, first among equals. They always wanted to be in charge because it is their region. It is their backyard. Americans are far away. <laughs> we are here and we have been here for centuries. And so publicly, yes, especially someone like Medvedev, who has gone off the rails right now, but he sort of was this, you know, boyish looking, almost playboy who's just fascinated by iPhone apps type, right? And 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 he, I mean, somebody like him would, of course, say something like that. Putin would be much less delicate about these issues, but no less bombastic. Yes, the fear, the apprehension has, has always been there. And is again, I call it imperial claustrophobia. Uh, it's like when you have such a large swath of land, looks like everyone wants a piece of it. And that is sort of the guiding sort of paradigm since forever. Yes, in 1990s, they were much more willing to be working together, much more tending to cooperate. But the war in the Balkans and in the uh, American bombing of Belgrade completely sort of upended this paradigm and brought about much more hardline thinking among the uh, Russian foreign policy establishment. And it has become ever so ossified and ever so sharpened at the edges, this rhetoric, uh, because they think you cannot just stand by and, and, let, uh, and let events dictate the future. You have to contain events and you have to dictate the future. And the only way to do it is project power, whether fair, by fair means or foul. And as we know right now, it's, it's the foul means that are helping Russia project power. And, and, you know, exposing its, really, its fragility for everyone to see. From Vladivostok to Kaliningrad, Minneapolis. <laughs> I mean, speaking of the future, I, I wanted to ask, do you foresee Armenia continuing to be dependent on Russian support? But in a way, I want to ask the opposite. Like, does Russia continue to sort of need Armenia to project this this illusion of power um, going forward, especially with what's happening in Ukraine and all of the complications there. Um, how do you sort of foresee, at least with Armenia-Russia relations, where that relationship is going to go? Well, it's interesting, and as for uh, as with everything else, there's an article written by a Russian journalist that appears in that book. I think Hramchikhin is the one, is a military analyst of some merit who writes about it. And the question, the road to 2020 is the chapter that I put that article. Who needs Russia most? Does Russia need most Armenia or Armenia needs Russia the most or something like that? And it was sort of a shot across the bow message to the Armenians that, and it says something along the lines of the grown up Armenians with sober heads have to be cognizant of the fact that Russia, uh, at the end of the day, 
doesn't need Armenia all that much. We can live without our bases in Gyumri, but you cannot live without our bases in Gyumri because Turkey. And it has always been sort of the Russian posture, especially, I mean, this was understood. This was sometimes stated, sometimes unstated, but this was understood. But when Nikol Pashinyan came to power and he started throwing his weight around and he started thinking that he's a great politician, he's not, but he's a great thinker, he's not. And he started thinking that he can all of a sudden make Russia look Armenia at Armenia as something that it has to value and it has to soccer and support unconditionally. Russians said, well, boy, that is not the case. And it sort of, sort of withdrew its provisional security canopy and it allowed the tandem of Russia, uh, the tandem of Turkey and Azerbaijan to wreak havoc and to wage the war and, and so on and so forth. As I like to say to my friends and consenting adults, <laughs> you know, Russian emperor, I think it was Alexander III or Alexander 2000th, who said Russia has only two allies, the Navy and the army. And Armenians should have taken those words seriously. Because Russia doesn't look at anyone as its allies, ultimately. Russia looks at smaller countries as expendables. It can use them for its own purposes. And again, it is the prerogative of great powers. They can afford this. But for people on the ground, things like this are, are, are very tragic. And, and Armenia has, yeah, Armenia right now has some agency that, that was wasted and taken away. Armenia tried to reclaim agency in foreign policy and tried to show its relative worth. Uh, and Armenians don't want to get involved in geopolitical conjecture. But it's like, you know, that Godfather character. I want to get out, but they pull me in. It's like Armenia is fated to be in the midst of, you know, imperial conjectures and clashing interests and so on and so forth. And we still haven't mastered sort of the, uh, the fine art of uh, becoming an agent of our own destiny uh, because our neighbors don't like it. Neither small neighbors or, or, or big neighbors. But it sounds a bit fatalistic and I am in, in a bit of a fatalistic mood because you probably have seen the news and so on and so forth. And I have friends whose kids are at the front lines and but it is what it is and we try to do, I try to do what I can do and the government needs to do what it can. Well, if we could ever imagine a day when Armenia could avoid being Michael Corleone and uh, not being pulled into that imperial conjecture, what would have to happen at home? The domestic politics have to be like, would it have to be a different government than Prime Minister Pashinyan? What are the domestic politics look like in Azerbaijan? And what would those have to look like to bring some long lasting peace? Because it seems that so many geopolitical actors have been injected into the process over the years, but what would ultimately have to change at home in the domestic politics for a long lasting peace? Well, in the domestic politics, Armenia doesn't need an idealist politician, but an ideal politician. And by an ideal politician, I mean the Weberian ideal type. A politician who is, has an animalistic instinct, is a statesman who realizes the relative capabilities of its country, who understands the relative worth of its citizenry, 
who tries to unite them, who is not a demagogue or a populist. All of these negatives that I talk about described, by the way, Nikol Pashinyan. Nikol Pashinyan has expired himself. It's just uh, spoiled milk that people keep drinking because it's still white. <laughs> he has done more damage to Armenia's political standing in terms of viability than any politician in recent memory. He completely destabilized the country. He destroyed every standing institution in Armenia, as I like to say, like, uh, like a wrecking ball, a newborn wrecking ball who has seen a standing wall for the first time. He destroyed the judiciary. He politicized the judiciary. Yes, it was corrupt, but he destroyed it instead of reforming it. There, uh, he, he completely defanged the army. The army after the war, yes, the war was lost, but the army after the war was not reformed. And for six months, the Armenian army had absolutely no leader. We didn't have a general chief of staff. The army didn't. I'm an American citizen, so I have, don't have to say we. But Armenia doesn't, didn't have an army chief. What kind of a message does it send? It's not like there were no candidates, but because he was so politicizing everything, it's everything he touches, he politicizes. And his rhetoric was just unbelievably irresponsible, unbelievably divisive, and so on and so forth. As for Azerbaijan, and yeah, so Armenia needs somebody who can find a common language with both enemies and allies alike. Uh, Armenia needs to be diplomatically engaging far and wide, near and far, with stakeholders and persuade that Armenia's viability as a state is also part of their interest. And as it stands, the Armenian foreign policy is in shambolic. I mean, a guy who's running the foreign, uh, uh, not the foreign office, but Ministry of Foreign Office. I mean, on best days, he has no idea what he's doing. Unqualified, not a diplomat, and a super loyal ally of Pashinyan. So everything is politicized. Everything is built around the person of Nikol Pashinyan. And his party members are afraid to criticize him because he will just sick loyal press against them and, and go on a Facebook Live and destroy. And, you know, I have a friend who was a politician in Armenia whose career was nearly ended. I don't want to give a name. Whose career was nearly ended because he dared to criticize Pashinyan during election time. And he was just dragged through the mud like you wouldn't believe it. Through fake accounts on Facebook or Twitter and through the, through the media and so on and so forth. So... As I like to say, Pashinyan is a stupid person's ideal of what the best politician is. <laughs> it, it's just that simple. He's just awful that way. So having said that, having criticized Armenia, let's now turn to Azerbaijan. And like uh, Azerbaijan, it, it's, it's a special case. As you probably know, is one of the worst offender uh, countries in the world in terms of having jailed journalists and the amount of political prisoners. It has absolutely crushed opposition. The opposition that exists on issues with, with regards to Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenians, they are even more vociferously anti-Armenian probably than, than Ilham Aliyev himself. So yes, there are some voices that are Azeri, that, that are fair-minded, that are committed to some human right ideals. But most of these people live outside of Azerbaijan and have no agency to effect change within Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan has crushed dissent, has crushed opposition or co-opted them. 
The media is completely in its pocket. Uh, even some opposition media. It's like the Stockholm Syndrome in Baku. People who had been jailed, who had been abused in jail, all of a sudden are singing dithorams and praises of Aliyev for his war against Armenia. So I do not have any hope short-term or mid-term for Azerbaijan, but hopefully somebody may come to power after Aliyev is dead, topples Aliyev, the father's statues, and that decides that the best course for, for the country's development is a true democracy, or at least something that approximates to true democracy. Because the way things are, it's, it's a, I mean, you may say, or you may think, oh, he's Armenian, he's exaggerating. You don't have to read me, you don't have to hear me, just read the international experts who talk about the country's just complete Armenophobia, from school curriculum, to the press, uh, to museums, Armenians are vilified day and night. And I don't know if you uh, saw the news today, but an Armenian uh, servicewoman was killed, dismembered, and her fingers were stuffed in her mouth. And videos are circulating in Azeri telegram channels, and, and it's being just praised by wide margins uh, compared to people who are condemning it. It's just... At, at, at the Azerbaijani demonology of Armenians is just staggering and frightening on some level. But and the thing is, Azerbaijan has oil. Azerbaijan has well-oiled lobbyists, and you know, and it has it has much more capable uh, propaganda machine than Armenians can even dream. So it has, uh, you know, it has co-opted European politicians. If you just Google the term called caviar diplomacy. I mean, it will, it will give you an idea of the extent of uh, Azeri government's efforts to corrupt Western politicians through bribery, through blackmail, and so on and so forth. So, as it stands, Armenia on its own, under Pashinyan, doesn't look like to have a standing chance to compete against Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan has realizes that the momentum is on its side, and so they're pressing to get the best. I appreciate that assessment of both sides. I know I'm asking you to do this in the middle of a conflict, a hot conflict, and one in which you, you certainly have close personal ties. So I, I do appreciate you still being able to kind of make that domestic political assessment. And we'll, uh, we'll do well to promote the book because it's so much more than just a view of the conflict as well, right? It's insight into post-Soviet media. It's an insight into kind of certain geopolitical vectors that are just going to be ever more relevant in the caucuses from Iran to the U.S. So it, it's so much more than just a singular look at the conflict itself. So uh, we'll do well to, to promote that because it was a, a thoroughly enjoyable read. Yeah. Uh, actually, the publisher is giving 35% discount to the listeners. Uh, the code is BGA35 if they go to eastviewpress.com. And at the checkout, it's 35% discount. But it's, it's, it's a great resource, and I think it's, it's super helpful. Maybe you can ask UT Austin to buy it. I don't see why not. Yeah, <laughs> no, it, the book is definitely, I would say, like, just speaking for both of us, like, incredibly invaluable to understand this conflict. Because, again, from, from our perspective, like, we're getting these snippets of information. But to really understand what's going on, it requires a much more deeper dive than just reading a CNN article or watching some, like, explainer. So this was phenomenal. And, like, you coming to speak with us was also just incredibly insightful and i know for you this is not just a yeah. professional you know connection it's personal 
personal. Certainly we're thinking of your friends and family that are still in our media. Thank you. Yeah. Again, no, th thank you. Wonderful conversation. All right. Wonderful. Wonderful talking to all of you. You have a good day. Thank you, Dr. Tonight. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 